It was the year 2000, and I had just moved from England to Little Rock, Arkansas. Man, I did not know anyone, and um, I got in touch with a youth ministry, and at this youth ministry was a guy named Ryan Seibert. Um The day after I met Ryan at youth group, he was one of the, the leaders there. He came and picked me up from school. This guy comes rolling into the high school parking lot, laying on the horn and screaming out the window. I was like, man, who is this guy? What have I got myself into? And it turned out that Ryan has become one of my best friends. Ever since then, he has taught me what it means um, to love someone, to have a brotherly affection like, um, man, like we read about in the Bible. You know, one of the verses that, that sticks out is, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I have countless stories of how Ryan has um, discipled me through loving me. Discipleship goes beyond just reading a book with someone or it goes beyond just um, imparting knowledge, but it's about giving your life, laying down your life. And that's what, honestly, what Ryan did for me. He just laid down his life for me. And, I'm real thankful for that. And it's not like Ryan was perfect. He opened himself up to me and talked about his failures and, and where he fell short and his struggles. Um, and we were able to, um, yeah, have kind of like a mutual friendship that developed over time. That man, I'll be forever eternally grateful for. This is week five of our six-week emphasis on the Discipleship Project. And I love what Andy shared um, because that's so much the heart of why we've been talking about discipleship so much over the past weeks. It's because we want things like that to be cropping up all over in our church family. We come together on Sundays, which is amazing. We have our life groups, which is a huge part of what we do here. And on top of that, we also want people in, in groups of one or two getting together, looking for how God is leading them, partnering together as we look to follow Jesus. And we believe that God is really going to work in some new ways as we lean into this. So, so over these weeks, we've been asking everybody to pray about how God is calling you to be a part of this, whether you're meant to approach somebody else to walk alongside you, or whether you feel like you're in a position to approach somebody else and walk alongside them. And next Sunday, right after third service, we're having an event down in the garage that in some ways is kind of a culmination of these six weeks. It's a training event. We're going to have lunch. We're going to have childcare for this. And here's the deal with this. If you've been hearing over the past several weeks as we've been talking about this discipleship stuff and you've been praying about it and you're ready to say, you know what? I'm in. I'm excited. I believe God is going to work. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to launch into this. Then next Sunday, this event can be sort of a launch for you in that. Especially if you're saying, I'm in, I feel like I don't 100% still know what to do. This event will help you with that. And on the other hand, if you've been listening to all of this and you say, all right, I, I want to be in, I want to participate, but I, I got to admit, even after five weeks, I'm still not totally clear on what's being asked of me. Next week will be perfect for you because we'll walk through the vision and we'll also walk through some specific equipping about practical ways to play this out. So I really do want to ask, 
please be at this next week. As I said, we provide lunch, we provide childcare. We really see this as an important way of us culminating this emphasis and beginning to go out and put it into practice. Um, and with that said, even, even with the message today, I'm going to allude back to the significance of discipleship and how it's played out. But we're going to move into the message time now. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. As we've been going through this series in 1 Timothy, talking about the different house rules of how the family of God functions, we're going to be in chapter 4 going through verses 6 through 10. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there and look down at that. If you don't have a Bible, you can look up on the screen because I'm going to begin our time by reading 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 6 through 10. So starting in, starting in verse 6, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is Savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. This is the Word of God. Karina and I lived in Portland, um, or a suburb of Portland for eight years, and while we were there, we were, we were in college ministry for a while, and the college group got involved in a homeless ministry, because downtown Portland is sort of a hub for homeless people to come. It's a very homeless, friendly place. And uh, one of the things I quickly learned when I had more time face-to-face with homeless people was that their ultimate priority, for many of them, their ultimate priority was not to stop being homeless. That to me was just sort of an assumption going in, that your life right now, you're looking to do whatever it takes to get off the streets. And while that's true with, with some of the ones I interacted with, with many of those I interacted with, that wasn't true at all. In fact, I would have times where I'd be sitting across from a guy and he would just say to me, believe me, I don't want to trade lives with you. I don't want the house in the suburbs. I don't want the bills. I don't want all that stuff that you have to deal with. And it, and it was just, it was really strange to me. It, it took a while to sort of grasp, why in the world would somebody behave in that way? Where they would see the path to what I would perceive to be, they would see the path to a better life, but they would choose not to take it. And one of the things that, that brought me a greater sense of understanding where they were coming from was when I came to realize the difference between me and them, the decisions they make and the decision I make, are not all that great. They're much more a matter of degree, and I'll, I'll illustrate why. Um, right now, I mean, I, I do have a home, but I am right now not making the most money I could possibly make. If I really wanted to, to, to vote my life and say, I want to maximize my earning power, and Karina and I want to maximize the funds that we have, there are definitely some things we could do. 
We could have a lot more side hustles going on and things like that. We could also be, be investing much more actively and we could learn different tricks in the stock market. We could be investing in real estate. We could be looking to flip houses. We, we could kind of get things moving if our ultimate goal was to maximize our earning potential. And while if somebody who was a financial manager kind of went and laid that all out before me and said, here's all of the things that you can do to get to the maximum impact of what you're making and what you could be making, I'm sure there would be a few of those things I would do. But to many of them, you know what I would say? I would say, no thanks. And it's not because I don't want a bigger house or more income or early retirement. All those things, I'm like, yeah, all that stuff sounds really great. In the same way for these homeless men I was talking to, it wasn't that they were saying, why would anybody want to live in a house? They understood the appeal of it. But for them, at least at the time, what they were concluding is, what I would lose by having to do all those things is not worth it to me. I'd rather have my freedom than to have to do all of that. And in a very similar way, I say, you know what? I'd rather have some of my freedom of my current life without doing everything I would have to do to maximize my earning potential. In fact, that's really how all of us make decisions in life. We're constantly coming up, and if I were to define these two spheres that we feel like are pulling at us, we'd say on the one hand, we've got discipline, and the idea of saying if you, have, if you live a highly regimented life, and if you're orderly, and if you're focused on all of these things, you can achieve these goals, you can do that. You've got discipline on one side, and you have freedom on the other side. And both of these are pulling at us. We see discipline and we see that there's benefits to discipline, but we also see that if we live a highly disciplined life, we're sacrificing freedom. Now let's transfer this over into the realm of our relationship with God. Um, how many, I'm, I'm not going to get real specific with it, so don't be afraid to raise your hands. I'm not going to dig deep into your lives, but I am going to ask for, for participation in this. How many of you right now are saying, I wish I was more orderly with a certain spiritual practice. All right, whole bunch of us, whole bunch of us are like, ah, I should be reading my Bible more. I, I should be praying more. I, I wish I was giving more consistently and more generous. I wish I had better participation. There's something like that, or there's some sin that we're saying, I, I wish I was more consistent in victory over this sin. Um, here's the deal. For any of us that are saying, I really wish I was reading my Bible more, um, we're usually not confused about what it would take to read our Bible more. <laughs> I mean, honestly, we're like, well, I know where my Bible is. I know what it would take. I would have to get up a little bit earlier. I would have to turn off Netflix. I, I would just, there are some things that I could do that would make that happen. It's not that we're not doing it because we don't know how to do it or we're confused, but it's because we're saying in order to get that, I'd have to give up some of my freedom. I'd have to give up some of my freedom that I get through waking up whenever I want to wake up. I'd have to give up some of the freedom that I get from coming straight home from work and just vegging out on what I want to do. Or I'd have to give up some of the freedom because I'd have to dig into God's Word in a way that I'd know it wouldn't always connect with me right away. Sometimes I'd be reading things that don't always seem applicable. I'd have to give up some freedom to get there. And we constantly, even in our relationship with God, feel pulled. Am I going to err on the side of discipline or am I going to err on the side of freedom? And the house rule that Paul is going to give us in this passage here is this. We embrace discipline. Now, here's the deal. Right now, that could, stand, that could sound like, all right, we've made the choice. 
Freedom or discipline, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, discipline or freedom, all right, we choose discipline. We just, we, we walk away from freedom, say enough of freedom, enough of joy, enough of rest, enough of all those things, we choose discipline. But instead, what we're going to see in walking through this passage is that Paul says to us, walking with Christ unites freedom and discipline. By embracing discipline, we are not choosing to walk away from freedom, we are actually choosing the path that gets us there. So as we walk through these five verses, here's how it will unfold. Paul starts with a goal that we have. He moves on towards the path to get to that goal. And finally, at the end, he reminds us of the reason why we would have discipline in our lives at all. So we start in verse 6 with the goal. And in essence, what Paul says is that the goal that we have is faithfulness. He's going to tell Timothy, here's what you're aiming at. You're aiming at faithfulness. Verse 6, he says to Timothy, if you point these things out to the brothers or sisters, and these things are probably not only the things that he talked about in the last five verses about combating false teaching, but really the whole letter. He's saying, Timothy, if you point out to the people at Ephesus, to the people that God has entrusted to your care, if you point out to them the way that the church is meant to be ordered and the way that they're meant to pray and the way that they're meant to hold on to the gospel and revel in God's grace because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Timothy, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished In other words, this is a term that has to do with the idea of sort of you're raised in this, you're brought up as a child in this, nourished on the truths of the faith, number one, and the truths of the faith, almost certainly what Paul is talking about here is the rock-solid gospel message. You're being nourished, you're feeding on, you're focused on the message that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We don't save ourselves, God saved us. Nourished on the truths of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. And the good teaching is probably all of the implications in our lives because of the gospel. So we forgive one another. So we're patient with one another. So we give generously of our money. So we follow Jesus. So we share the faith with other people. So we use our spiritual gifts. Timothy, you're going to be nourished on the gospel message and on gospel implications. But look back at the middle now. He says, if you do these things, Timothy you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus. Now, here's the problem with the word minister. We've come to largely associate the word minister with pastor. Say, in essence, Paul is saying, Timothy, if you do all these things, you'll be a good pastor. The word minister, much more literally, just means servant. In fact, it's the same word that Paul used in chapter 3 when he was talking about deacons who do works of service in the church. He says, Timothy, if you do these things, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Not everybody in this room would say that they're a minister in the sense that they're a pastor, that you hold a position like that. But every one of us who is a believer in Jesus is a servant of Christ Jesus. Jesus tells a parable in the Gospels, um, and I'll kind of sum it up. It goes a little bit like this. He's got a master, and he's got three servants, and the master is about to go away. So before he goes away, he entrusts his servants with a certain amount of money that they're meant to make go as far as they can make it go. So he entrusts them with different amounts of money. Two of them put the money to work and invest it and work with it and trade and look to take that money as far as they can. And one of the servants goes and buries his money in a hole so he can give it back to his master when the master comes back. 
And when the master comes back, he rebukes the servant that buried it in a hole, saying, I didn't give it to you so that you'd bury it. I gave it to you so that you'd use it and do something with it. He rebukes him. But to the two servants that used their money well, he says something to them that has since the time of Jesus' parable about this become something that many Christians have resonated with and longed for. He says to them, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Man, how would you like to hear that from Jesus? Well done, good and faithful servant. The job of those servants wasn't to make themselves famous, to make themselves great, to make a great name for themselves. The job of those servants was to be faithful with the task that God had given them. And he says, Timothy, if you do these things, in essence, Timothy, if you do your job, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. You'll hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And here's something, before getting into the stuff in verses 7 and 8 that, that gets kind of into the depths where we talk about living a life of discipline for God, we just need to pause and say, you know what the goal is? The goal is faithfulness. The goal is not that you as a Christian make yourself as famous as you possibly can. The goal is that you're faithful to do what God has called you to do. And I, and I think for different ones of us, we, we need to hear this in a slightly different way. So, so even thinking back to that parable, some of us need to hear that message about being faithful through the angle of being the servant who buried the money in the ground. That there's some of you here that the main reason you need to hear this is because God has given you spiritual gifts to be used for his glory. God has given you resources and money to be used to help people. God has given you discretionary time to be used for really fruitful eternal things and you're burying it in the ground. And your call to faithfulness is to begin to get active in doing what God has called you to do. That would be faithfulness. But I think there's also a lot of you in this room that you need to hear it a bit more from the angle of the servants who did the right thing with this. And the reason I say that is that there can be a temptation that we can look at our lives and believe that we can only do great things for God if our life situation changes. So some of you right now are probably saying, man, I would absolutely serve Jesus if all I had, if I didn't have these little kids that I had to take care of. I would absolutely serve Jesus with all I have if we weren't living paycheck to paycheck and if we had jobs that were bringing in more money. I would absolutely be serving Jesus with all I had if my health was a little bit better and I didn't have to deal with these limitations. I would absolutely serve Jesus with all I have if I didn't have a job that just sucked the life out of me and made me cranky all the time. So God, if you just change my circumstances, I'm all in. And here's the deal. Sometimes God is going to change those circumstances. And I'm not even saying it's bad for, to, to pray that God will adjust some of those circumstances. But consider the fact that where God has placed you right now is where God has placed you right now. Your primary calling is not to change your circumstances. Your primary calling is to be faithful with where God has put you. So you know what? If God has put you in a place right now where you got little kids and you're feeling the limitation of those little kids, man, be faithful with those kids that God has entrusted to your care. 
You're not waiting for what God has called you to do. He's called you to do something right now. Be faithful in the job that you're working right now, even if it's not your dream job and you feel kind of frustrated with it. Be faithful in your health limitations because maybe God has you with health limitations right now so that you can shine the light of the gospel to doctors and nurses and other patients. Don't wait until you're able to have the circumstances that you think you need. Be faithful now. Be faithful now because the call of us as believers is not to make ourselves great or make ourselves famous. Our call is to be faithful and to do the job that God has called us to do. And that's what Paul says to Timothy. Timothy, do your job and you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. That's the goal. But now in verses 7 and 8, he's going to tell us the path. And and maybe not surprisingly, because I've already talked about it, the path is discipline. The path is not that you have no plan to get there. The path is discipline. So he says in verse 7, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. And by the way, this is a little bit funny because Paul here, he's talking about in a very disparaging way. He's talking about the false teachers who consider themselves to be highly sophisticated. He's talking about people that are sitting in ivory towers and thinking through big issues and coming down and saying, I think we figured out the problems of the world. And I think we figured out the way to approach God. And I think that we figured out the the relationship between the body and the spirit. And they come with these deep philosophical ideas. And you know how Paul refers to them? Godless myths and old wives' tales. Basically says they may be very impressed with their sophisticated answers, but God is looking down on them as if, oh, they're doing their best. They're fiddling around, and what they came up with was a little bit silly. He says, have nothing to do with these things, but rather, and here's the central command of the whole passage, rather train yourself to be godly. And the word train is sometimes translated discipline yourself to be godly. It's an athletic term. It's actually the Greek word that's used here is the word that we get our English word gymnasium from. And athletics were a big part of life in Ephesus. So this would have probably connected with Timothy because he would have been looking around outside and seeing all kinds of people training their bodies. Now, we live in Southern California. Is it hard to look around and see people training their bodies? Not hard at all. We just you're going on Euclid. People are going on runs and going on walks. We see people out on bike rides. You go to the gym, they're full of all kinds of people doing exercise. Train yourself, discipline yourself to be godly. And by the way, he doesn't say discipline yourself to be moral. There's a difference. Morality is just trying to be better with your behavior. Godliness is drawing near to God so that the life of the Holy Spirit is lived out in what we do. Train yourself to be godly. And the reason you train yourself to be godly is because godliness doesn't just happen. Some of you no doubt saw this, but um, last year the, the documentary that won the Oscar for best documentary was a movie called Free Solo. And it was about, uh, if I say his name right, Alex Honnold, who did a free solo climb of El Capitan, which if you don't know what that means, that means he had no ropes, he was attached to nothing as he scaled this giant, uh, this giant climb. Um, it really was one of those cases where it's not, oh, if you fall, you fall. It's you fall, you die. And the movie is largely about his training for this and how with ropes, he would go over and over again on every element of this climb. And at the tricky parts, he would strategize with the exact right way. This hand goes like this, this foot goes like this. You push yourself off. He planned every move that he did on this climb. 
You don't just wake up one morning and say, I'm climbing El Capitan free solo. You train for it. You discipline yourself for it. And Paul, in a similar way, is saying, Timothy, nobody just wakes up and is suddenly godly. You discipline yourself for godliness. And he adds this in. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, for physical training is of some value. Or another possible translation would be, for physical training is of value for a little while. But godliness has value for all things, holding promise both in this present life and in the life to come. And probably even some of us in this room right now need to be reminded it's unwise for us to spend more time concerned about our physical bodies than about our eternal soul. It says physical training, nothing wrong with that, nothing wrong with eating right, nothing wrong with exercising, that has some value for a little while. But godliness holds promise for the life right now and for the life to come. It, it brings rewards into our life right now, and it brings us the promise of eternal rewards in the life to come. Uh, let me tell you a story. So, um, when I was in college, I, I had what I believed to be one of my most significant spiritual experiences where I really experienced God doing something new in my life when I was a college freshman. And the way that this had come about <clears throat> was that towards the end of high school, I was sort of living one of those typical like, yeah, I go to church and I go to youth group and I do all the things there, but then I just go out and do my own thing. And Jesus is with me. He's kind of the passenger in the, my car. You know, he's kind of along for the ride, but I'm really in charge of my life. And towards the end of high school, God really convicted me of this. And, and I repented of a lot of things and, and that was good. But the way that I responded was basically to repent and then to look to give every effort that I possibly could to do everything that God had called me to do. It was sort of like, all right, new life, new leaf is turned over. I'm now going to be absolutely all in, which is not bad. But for me, being absolutely all in was a joyless, burdensome experience because I was living basically with the sense that here's what God expects from me. God expects from me not perfection because he knows I'm not going to get it, but he expects me to expend every bit of energy that I have striving for perfection. And that's how I was living. And God was doing some things in my life, but man, it was not a happy season of life. And I remember one night my roommate was out and I was uh, just in my dorm room alone and I was reading the book of Galatians for some reason just because God wanted me to read that. And I got to chapter 3 and I got to verse 13. And Galatians 3 verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And it was like water to a parched man. The idea, I was like, oh my goodness, I have been living as if I'm under the curse of the law. And what that means is basically I had been living as if God's expectation for me was perform well and then I'll be happy with you. I had been living as if I was under the curse of the law. And here's a verse in Galatians telling me Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Jesus bought us back from that life. Jesus died for my sins. Jesus performed so that I don't have to. Jesus was raised to new life. And I just remember taking this in and suddenly starting to see that the God of the universe was not a tyrant demanding performance, 
but was a father looking to shepherd me. And I just started crying. And I've never been the same since. But I need to add something in. I could say, all right, I've never been the same since, but here's what you need to know. It is a regular battle to not fall back into the godless myths or the old wives' tales that God expects me to perform in order to earn my place with him. You know what it takes? I, I'd love to tell you. You know what it takes to hold on to that? It takes pure joy to hold on to that. But you know what it actually takes? It takes discipline. It takes me ordering my life around saying, man, there's lies out there. I need as much truth as I can possibly get. And man, there are times that I read the Bible and I, I read the Bible every day. There are times where I read the Bible just for the pure joy of hearing God's voice. But there are also times that I read the Bible out of pure desperation not to be pulled back under the curse of the law. Nobody wakes up and is suddenly godly. Nobody wakes up and suddenly believes God's truth over the lies around you. And man, when I am living in the freedom of being redeemed from the curse of the law, that is pure joy and that is pure freedom. And you know how I get to it? Through discipline. These things are not enemies. I don't gain freedom from walking away from living a disciplined life. I get to the freedom that's the promise for the good life now and the promise for rewards in the life to come through ordering my life around what God has called me to do. And you know, none of you are going to wake up tomorrow and suddenly be more godly than you were today. You're going to experience more joy, more hope, more of hearing God's voice, more of the Holy Spirit empowering you and working through you to the extent that you choose to lean in to the ways that you order your life around directing your attention to God. The goal is faithfulness. Well done, good and faithful servant. The path is discipline. But Paul wants to remind us of the reason for all of this. And he says, in essence, the reason is hope. So verse 9 says, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. This is something, this is the third time that Paul uses this saying um, in, the, in the book of 1 Timothy, and he uses it to refer to a statement he wants to draw attention to. And most scholars think what he's doing here is he's drawing our attention back to what he just said where he said, you know what? Physical exercise, it's good for some things, but train yourself to be godly and that will hold promise for the life now and the life to come. And then he follows it up by saying, what I just said right there, that's really important. Pay attention to it. Zero in on it. Not only is that a trustworthy saying, but he says in verse 10, that is why we labor and strive. That's why we discipline ourselves. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we pray. That's why we fight against sin. That's why we get into discipleship relationships where we're working together to experience victory over sin and new habits in our lives. That's the reason why we labor and strive. And Paul certainly lived his life laboring and striving. And it's not because he thought otherwise God wouldn't accept him. It's because he didn't want to miss out on any of the joy of walking closely with Jesus. Paul says, what I just talked about right there, that's why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God. I know hope is, is usually used today, like, well, we really hope, we really hope it works out, really hope I get a good birthday present, hope that my stock comes through, hope I get that job, hope that the Dodgers win today. You know, we're just, we're just kind of hoping. That's not biblical hope. 
Biblical hope basically means this is what we are banking on. This is what we have bet on. This is what we have hitched our wagon to. We have bet on the living God. And please just remember, the God that we read about, the God we're talking about right now, is not just an ancient God who used to do great things in the world. He is the living God who is active right now. He is transforming lives. He's at work around you. He's shaping you. He's working all things together for your good. We have come to place our hope, to lay down our bet on the living God who is the Savior of all people and especially of those who believe, which I think is just a way of him saying, God sent his son Jesus to save the world. And those of us who get in, those of us who believe and get in on that salvation all the more we experience the goodness of God's saving work in our lives, which allows us to be able to look at the reality of what Paul talked about back in verse 8, that when we discipline ourselves for godliness, it holds promise for now and for the life to come. There's a story in Daniel chapter 3, and and a lot of you will be familiar with it. It's a famous story about three Jewish young men named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they were Jews who were in exile in Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had put up a giant statue for everybody to bow down to. And he came to these three Jewish young men who were refusing to bow down to it and said to them, if you don't bow down to this idol, you will be thrown into the fiery furnace. And and let me just paraphrase what these three young men said to him. They said, King Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to bow down to the statue. We believe that our God can deliver us from the fire. And then they say this. Then they say, but even if he doesn't, we're still not bowing down. That is hope. They could have said, King Nebuchadnezzar, we believe that God is going to deliver us from the fiery furnace. But if he doesn't, we'll be happy to bow down. That would be what you'd say if you don't have hope in eternal life. But somehow these three men believed in a living God, a God who is still the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, a God of the living and not a God of the dead. They believed in a resurrection at the end. And those of us who know the story of Jesus, we know this all the more. We know that Jesus was raised from the dead and he burst open the gates for eternal life. So when we're facing down something difficult, we can say, all right, if I do this, if I follow Jesus in this new way, I might lose my job. If I follow Jesus in this new way, we might not be able to still afford our house. If I follow Jesus in that, this way, my friends may walk away from me. And we can start on the one hand saying, you know what? I know God is able to do it. I know God is able to bring me through this where I won't lose my job. I know God is able to bring me through this where we, won't, we will still be able to keep our house. I, I know God can bring me through this in a way that my friends won't walk away from me. But even if I lose it all, I'm still going to follow Jesus wherever he leads because I have come to believe in the living God. And no step of faith lived before the living God is ever going to come up blank. Our bets are placed on solid ground. We have come to hope in the living God, which means that we can pursue that good, that well done, good and faithful servant, and means that every step of discipline that we take to get us there 
is well spent. So, so let me just talk about this for a couple minutes, about how we live this out. And, and I'll, I'll just tell you, in a couple minutes, the band is going to come back out and give us a chance to respond in worship. Give us a chance to give our hearts in a way of worship to the living God who is our Savior, who's redeemed us from the curse of the law. We're going to get a chance to worship, and we're also going to get a chance to respond because we're going to have pastors and elders and prayer team members on either side. And at some point during the song, you may feel like God is calling you to come forward and pray with someone. And even if you don't come forward and pray with somebody, let let me just give you some ways that God might be calling you to respond to this message. The first is this. Some of you are going to be called to respond to this message by looking at your life and saying, you know what? I'm basically burying my treasure right now. I have spiritual gifts that I know are meant for the good of the church, but I've been selfish with them. I have money that I know ultimately belongs to God and He wants me to use for His purposes, and I've basically been hoarding it. I have been burying my treasure. I've been living for myself. I've been trying to find freedom through my own path. And it's time to embrace the idea that God is calling me to trust Him. So for some of you, you have some big decisions to make. You have some life-altering decisions to make that are going to call you to embrace discipline and trust that God will bring the reward of that. I'm just going to say, if that's you, you might feel kind of intimidated by that, and you might even feel not so sure that you're going to follow through on what you know you need to do. So if you're feeling that way, it's a great time to come and get some prayer. And some others of you, what God is going to call you to embrace is the idea that it is not up to you to try to change your circumstances, to put yourselves in the ideal place to serve Jesus. He is going to call you to faithfulness where he's placed you right now. And for some of you, that's a hard pill to swallow. You're saying, I'm not sure I'm crazy about this right now. This isn't how I imagined my life. But the one who is faithful with a small thing will be faithful with the big thing. And so for some of you right now, it might be largely an attitude change of saying, you know what, instead of resenting where I am right now, I'm going to fully embrace where I am and I'm going to trust God to empower me to live out the gospel in my family, in my job, with my lack of health, whatever I'm dealing with. And if that's you, it would probably help a lot to get somebody to pray with you about that and speak courage into your heart. And beyond all that, some of you might just be feeling like, you know what, there's some specific ways that I need to reorder my life. There's some specific disciplines that God is calling me to, and I don't want to do it, and I'm afraid I won't follow through. Man, this is what the discipleship stuff that we've talked about is all about. And so what better way to start than to come to a brother or sister and ask for prayer and for God to empower your heart to do what he's called you to do. Nobody just wakes up and is more godly than the day before. But God always rewards steps of faith that we take. So I'm going to ask you to stand and let me pray for us as we get ready to respond in our hearts. Father, thank you so much that you call us to so much more than just distant obedience. Thank you that you don't want us to be detached robots trying to obey you. You treat us as children. You're a good father. You're a good shepherd. And please help us to remember now the many ways that you've shepherded us when we felt like we were in the dark valley. Father, I pray that you lead us with your shepherding. I pray that you lead us to trust you enough to embrace discipline so that we can experience the reward of the promise that it brings both now and in the life to come. We pray that you are honored and you receive pleasure through our voices and our singing and our hearts right now. 
In Jesus' name, amen.